On this national holiday, we memorialize all of those persons who, through the giving of their very lives, have made it possible for us to drink freely and deeply from the great fountain of freedom. We not only celebrate and thank God for the gift of all of those lives given during service, through service to the country and armed services, but we also remember those pioneers of faith who, though they never went to war, provided services considered indispensable for the country so that they were not drafted but were made exempt. I think of Francis Asbury in that number, about whom it was said, he wore the rough places smooth for the tender feet of Christian civilization. We come on a day called a holiday by the world, but for us a holy day, to thank God for these persons who gave themselves so completely that this cradle of democracy may remain free. But on this Memorial Sunday, we think it altogether appropriate that we recognize a threat to our freedom, more massive than a military buildup, that we recognize a threat more threatening than a communist takeover, that you and I come to terms with the tremendous threat of a society addicted to drugs. My people, we've heard about trouble in River City. It's time we recognize trouble in Bayou City. Consider any other problem which you think threatening the economy, the loss of value in real estate, AIDS, all of these real problems, each in their own way, but they pale into insignificance almost by the problem of drugs. The mayors and the chiefs of police of this nation have declared this our number one domestic problem. Here in the city of Houston, we have seen the reallocation of community development funds to try to get at the crack houses that operate blatantly in broad open daylight. And all that we've managed to do thus far has been only a minor irritation to the traffic that goes on unimpeded, uninterrupted. Indeed, some are excited to see the military become involved. But experts in the field say if we brought all of our armed forces to bear to try to keep drugs from getting into this country, we could expect no more than a 15 to 20 percent reduction in the drug traffic. As the forces have concentrated on Miami, it's been like a brick thrown into a puddle of water, and Texas has become a center with a large coastline bordering on another country, with a port in Houston 
with two airports, innumerable airstrips, in the desolate areas of our state, we have become a center. The drug dealers are better equipped and better financed than our police and all the agencies set against them. It has been conservatively estimated that the drug traffic brings in no less than $110 billion per year or enough to run the city of Houston for 110 years without $1 in tax money. 110 years. And of course, our crimes that make us barricade ourselves in our homes and our churches even are directly related and are drug-driven. Of course, the most popular thing going now is crack, the derivative of cocaine. It takes eight seconds for someone to get high on crack. That high lasts between 15 and 20 minutes in the average person, and after that high is passed, they go lower than they've ever gone before, so that they are seized with a, a desperate need to get more and more, so that the average amount expended by a youth is more than $1,000 a week to keep them supplied. They'll jerk the rings off your fingers and snatch your purse and break into your home and they will shoot you all in a desperate attempt to get this resupply. And speaking of youth, we have because of this huge problem a threat to a large segment of the entire youth population. Our chief police says he's no longer shocked to see an eight-year-old using drugs. At first, that was a shocking circumstance, but no more because the dealers are concentrating upon youth and they're making our youth their drug dealers because they count on the judges being lenient with youth. And now teachers in the classrooms hear beepers go off, worn by children, and those beepers are worn by the children supplied by the drug dealers in order to let the youth know when it's time to go meet a customer. Beepers in the classrooms. And how are we to respond to this number one domestic problem that is not restricted to the poor neighborhoods, not restricted to the slum section, but encompasses the entire city. The only difference between the neighborhoods is in the more prosperous neighborhoods, they have more drugs, they have larger amounts of drugs. It's a more sophisticated, if you please, but still it's there. We've begun to get at some insights, those of us who care about our community. And we've begun to see that the solution is not in going to the source of supply in these other countries, as we've been trying to say. That's only one part of it. The solution is getting at the huge demand in our country. After all, it's silly to blame other countries for our appetite or to punish somebody else for our appetite. They are supplying that which we demand. We're getting smart enough to see that it's better to build a fence at the top of the cliff than to run an ambulance service to the foot of the precipice. 
And in that attempt, we're trying to educate our people. From our pulpits and in our classrooms and in our seminars, we're trying to raise the consciousness of our people so that we can accomplish with drugs the same kind of thing MAD does for drunken drivers, to to raise the conscious level so that people bring a total commitment saying, hey, that's my problem. It doesn't matter that my children are grown and somehow escaped it. It's my problem. It touches on every one of us in direct ways. Education is a huge ally in this, bringing people to the realization of what happens when one begins to experiment with drugs. The family is, of course, the core unit, and that's where the church and Christian faith is indispensable. The family is the unit where basic modeling is done that will enable young people to resist their peer pressure and to say no and mean it. Speaking of family, if you've if you haven't heard John Lucas, I hope you can. John Lucas was, of course, a member of our Rockets professional basketball team until his second drug offense, and then was dismissed and later picked up by another team. John Lucas has dedicated his life during the off season to going around talking to people about this threat to our personal freedom. John Lucas said. He started out with beer and went to marijuana, an introductory drug, and then he went to cocaine. He talked about those beginning days when he always had to put on his suit to go to the basketball games. It, as a professional, that's a part of his, his, his attire. He'd wear his suit, and, and then on his way out of the house, he'd pick up his six-pack to drink it, began drinking on the way home. And then his little boy got up big enough to join a youth basketball team and, and his little boy wanted to put on his suit every time before a game and pick up a can of soda pop so he could drink it on the way home. And John Lucas was frozen by the realization that his son wanted to be just like him. And so he's been talking about families in a drug environment. Families in a drug environment that, that uh, go for the quick fix, uh, go for the magic cure-all. Families, uh, some of whom the adults, in which the adults have to have a drink every day in order to relax and make them suitable for human companionship. He talks about families with a drink in their hand saying to their young people, you stay away from drugs. And the mixed message that sends to young people. Did you see that cartoon in one of our papers a week or two ago? It was a dramatic cartoon. It had four horsemen taking that image out of the apocalypse, out of the book of Revelation. Did you see that cartoon? Four horsemen, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, and tobacco. And I thought, they're starting to sound like preachers. Why, a few years ago, people made fun of prohibition and preachers. 
And they thought how stupid that was and how out of touch with reality. And now who's preaching? You don't hear that much from the pulpit anymore. Who's preaching now? I'll tell you. The secular newspapers are preaching. And, and, the, and the heads of industries are preaching. And community leaders are preaching. And they're saying, I don't think this society can bear it. I don't think we can tolerate it. It's a lot harder to get someone from 12 to 20 now than it ever was before. For many of us, being a child, a young person in a family in generations past meant we could make a meaningful contribution uh, to our family's life. We, we, were, we were necessary. We were needed. And consequently, we had all kinds of rites of passages that, that gave us a solid foundation of who we were. I remember in my family, my father was a naval stores operator. That is, he had a turpentine still and, and worked those pine trees and, and was a farmer. And, and in our family, you weren't considered grown a man, if you please, until you could roll one of those barrels full of turpentine up some skid poles onto the back of a truck and head it up, set it up. You had to be able to do that by yourself. And when you could do that, you were considered a man. I still remember who was present. I can see the pine trees. I, I, I know the model of the truck. I can still feel that the, the feeling of when I got that barrel to stand up by myself. Weighed over 400 pounds. And somehow I got that thing moving just right and had learned the technique and, and set it up. And when I walked down off that truck, I was bigger than I've ever been before. I was a man. I'd arrived. How do you creatively involve your young people? What kind of riot of passage do they have? It isn't easy in our society where even the garbage is picked up for us. How do you do that? That's where the church, of course, is in partnership with you. And we never get tired of spaghetti suppers around here. And we never get tired of choir tours. And we never get tired of, of giving a board or a saw to help them go on a work team. We never tire of providing chaperones to go to Deep Creek. We never get tired of those things because we're with you in a creative involvement. It's tough. I didn't know anything about curfews when I came along. Why did I need a curfew? When I was eight years old, I was assigned to a milk cow. And I had to milk her every morning and every night. And I had to get her out before the sun came up. Had to be finished milking. I had to... My daddy didn't tell me what time to come in. He just said, boy, don't let the cow low twice. I guess that first low was just an expression of grace or a good morning or something, but... I tell you, if I heard her low once and I was trotting toward the barn, I'd start talking to her, please don't low again, please. <laughs> and when somebody talked to me about the dawn's early light, I knew exactly what they were talking about. Uh, when you have that kind of schedule, you don't have to worry about your kids staying out late at night. A curfew wasn't a problem, but how do you creatively engage them in our day? That's where family and church must team up as partners, each 
giving our best in the effort. And then someone will come along and say, well, just legalize the drugs. We're hearing a lot about that today. Now, that's the point I agree with Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson said, how can you win a war by surrendering? If anyone thinks that might work, you ought to go uh, read that uh, article, They Wait for Midnight. It's about the drug addicts in England. It tells about how they gather at Piccadilly Circus right in the heart of London. These people who are, who are helplessly addicted, they gather there late at night. They are fascinated by a huge clock as it gets up close to midnight. They're clutching in their hands their prescriptions, their little slips of paper from a, a physician that enables them to get a maintenance dose once a day. They get a maintenance dose, and, and they could get that dose any hour of the day, but they can't wait for the day. They think they're dying, and many of them are dying. They can't wait for the daylight. They're watching, they're waiting for that clock to strike the hour of midnight. They come slinking out of the alleys, men and women, boys and girls. They come out of the shadows holding their prescriptions, rushing to the apothecary to get their prescriptions. One person who watched them said, some can't even wait to roll up their sleeves, but began jabbing themselves through their clothing. Millions in that country and in ours have lost their personal freedom. And when you lose your personal freedom, you've lost everything and you've, and you've set aside the dreams and aspirations of all those whose memories we recall on Memorial Sunday. We are hopefully about ready to turn to the Master to ask for His answer to the problem in Bayou City. And when we turn to Jesus, he tells us how to deal with evil. He tells us in a few short words how we must deal with evil in that 11th chapter, 24 through 26 verses. He tells us about the unclean spirit that's gone out of a man. And when he doesn't find a resting place, he decides to go back and he discovers the house has been swept and is in good order and it's empty. And when he finds that empty house, he goes out and gets seven more spirits, more evil than himself, and he brings them, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. The Bible says they dwell there, which means they settle down and they take possession of that man's life. Why? Because he thought he could engage in a little cleaning up, a little bit of moral tidying up. But if you don't fill up your life with good, it'll get filled up with evil. Evil, you see, can be banished, but it isn't destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying. You can win a victory, but it doesn't disappear. It waits in the wings, and, and given the least provocation, it'll jump back into the center of the stage. You win a battle, but you aren't through with the battle. You'll fight another. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and when we think we can just engage in a little self-reformation and, and tidy ourselves up and leave ourselves empty, we're kidding ourselves. That's why a negative religion can never do it. 
because no life can stay empty very long. Nature abhors a vacuum, and a life will be full of good or a life will be full of evil. This was a man who left his house empty. What is needed is lives full of God. Like those early disciples, when they took to the streets, they said, these guys are drunk. But they were, they were drunk, all right, but not on wine, Simon Peter said. They were God-intoxicated people. That's what they were. And they were so full of God, there wasn't, there wasn't any, any need left. That huge, insistent, gnawing need we feel in our souls was not there anymore. You want to know about New Age? You want to know about astrology? which is prohibited and forbidden in both the Old and the New Testaments? You want to know why there's a new religion popping up every day? It's because people have a gnawing need in their souls. They're empty. They're looking for something to find. They're, they're like that stooped man who went around looking down and someone said, why are you always looking down? He said, I'm looking for something to find. People want full lives. They, they're holding on, but they, they want to be held. They have God in their mouths, but they need Him in their hearts. They know God is a memory, but they need Him as a presence, a reality. Somebody asked, or rather it was Dwight L. Moody who asked the crowd. He had an empty glass, and he held up the empty glass, and he said, how do I get the water, uh, the air out of that glass? Some smart person in the back said, you get a vacuum pump and you vacuum it out. And he said, oh, no, if you get a perfect vacuum, the, the sides will cave in, it'll break. And then while the crowd watched, he took the glass and took a pitcher and poured it full of water until it ran over. And then he said, there's no more air in that glass. That's how you deal with evil. You let the power of God fill your life so completely there's no longer a need for it. You can become like Christ himself who when he was dying on the cross and they offered him a drug we translate it vinegar it was a drug they offered him a drug and what did he do? Say hey that's wonderful I want to get high again. The Bible says when he had tasted thereof he would not drink. With his life full of God, he had the inner resources to stand the strain in life and in death. And the same resources are available to us. Oh, the poet said it. I've tried a thousand ways, my fears to quell, my hopes to raise. But what I need through all my days is Jesus. Jesus who offers us the water that'll never let us thirst and offers us the bread that satisfies forever. Amen.
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by the one offering of himself a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us, O merciful Father, we most humbly beseech thee, and grant that we, receiving these thy creatures of bread and wine, according to thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his passion, death, and resurrection, may be partakers of the divine nature through him, who in the same night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of this, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as oft as you shall drink it, in remembrance of me. Amen. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to partake of this sacrament of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that we may walk in newness of life may grow into his likeness, and may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. For all my dreams 
sending you away But just like you promised You came there to stay I just had to pray so great I can't understand and dear Lord I know that all this was planned I know you're here now and always will be your love Loose my chains And in you I'm free But Jesus Why me? And Jesus said Come to the water Stand by my side I know You won't be denied I felt every teardrop When in darkness you cried And I strove to remind you For those tears I die Jesus, I give you my heart and my soul I know Without God, I'd never be whole. Savior, you opened all the right doors. And I thank you and I praise you from earth's humble shores. Take me. you're thirsty, you won't be denied. I felt every teardrop when in darkness you cried, and I strove to For those tears I died And I strove to remind you
of those tears I died. The body of Christ broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of him and be thankful.
our Lord Jesus Christ. Drink this in remembrance of him and be thankful. We're going to sing our hymn of commitment, which is entitled, Make Me a Captive, Lord. We'll sing the first, second, and last stanzas. And let those of you who wish to avail yourself of this life-giving presence come forward as we stand and sing. We'll be pleased to welcome you into our fellowship and into our church. Will you come as we stand and sing? (laughs) 